We began last week asking, answering the question, have the miraculous gifts ceased? Conversation began because we were going to be studying Acts chapter 3, the healing of the lame man who sat at the gate entering into the Temple Mount. He had been lame for 40 years since his birth, and Peter heals him. Well, this study in this fledgling era of the church is important for us, and it obviously prompts this question regarding uh, miraculous gifts. And so we ask that question, have these miraculous gifts ceased? Now, just review a little with me in your mind. We're, we're talking about miraculous gifts, and we, de- we defined a miracle as this direct act of God's power that's inserted into or that transcends the ordinary working of the creative order. So God designed things to work, those scientific laws. And so gravity and all, those are kind of God's design. That's the way things work. And we're saying a miracle is, is God's power that is kind of inserted into those normal workings. Um, and so we, we, we recognize we often use miracle in its common sense, but it, it's not truly the definition of miracle. Uh, you know, you... Your first child is brought into the world and you say, oh, the miracle of birth. Well, not a miracle proper because that's the way God, that's the ordinary working of things. Now that we could say miraculous and that, yes, God is the author of life. Obviously, that is God's power, but it confuses us when we talk about a miracle proper if we use miracle in all those common ways. So this is divine intervention that is beyond what we would say common. Uh, It's a less common way of God working in the world. So we believe God can do miracles. In asking the question, have the miraculous gifts ceased, we're not asking, has God's power been limited? Does God stop doing miracles? Does God no longer intervene? That's not the question. In order to get to a more precise answer, we decided to maybe ask a more precise question. And that question is, are the miraculous gifts normative in the practice of the church today? Because we look in the Bible, we see these seasons of miracles, uh, and, and now we come to the book of Acts, and we see more under the apostles, and we're trying to figure out for our day and age Not, can God do miracles? That answer is an obvious yes. But do these miraculous gifts function as the normal practice of the New Testament church? Um, We recognize other gifts, gifts of hospitality or service or administration or teaching. You can read those gifts in the different lists. We see them in the church today, and we don't question whether they're the normal practice of the church but gifts of prophecy, words of wisdom, uh, gifts of healing. Uh, We're asking, are those normative? Are they the normal practice of the church today? Remember, there's two primary answers to this question. Uh, Some would say, no, these gifts have not ceased. Uh, We would call this continuationism. Those miraculous gifts continue. 
the supernatural gifts of the Holy Spirit, such as prophecy, tongues, interpretations of tongues, healings, and miracles, have not ceased, but rather are available and are the normative practice of the church today. Others would say, yes, some of these miraculous gifts have ceased. Uh, and, and that position, borrowing on that word cease, is called cessationism. So we have continuationism, they continue, cessationism, those gifts have ceased. Uh, and generally that's, that deadline at, is defined by either the completion of the canon of Scripture and or, they kind of go together, the end of the apostolic ministry specifically. So focus on that word normative. When conversations come up about miraculous gifts or somebody's asking you about tongues or if you believe in healing, whatever it is, it's too often it becomes a debate over which camp believes God can do miracles, and that is not the, the debate. So, so work at clarity and get to that, that word normative. What is the normative practice for the church today? And obviously... I'm giving these arguments for the temporary nature of the miraculous gifts, um, but I want to give these arguments in such a way that, that you're thinking uh, both with biblical logic and then we can also make specific biblical arguments from the text. Uh, but the goal is for us to study together, to think together. Maybe on the onset or at the end, you'll think, I don't know if I'm there. Well, that's okay. I just want you to be thinking through Uh, what the Bible teaches so that you can be consistent in your arguments. All right, we we began by thinking through the data of Scripture that reveals miracles to us. Because if we're trying to get to an answer of, have these gifts ceased, that would be much like asking, are they temporary in nature? So when we look at all the biblical data about miracles, we realize that for most believers, Old Testament or New Testament believers, throughout all humanity, very few of them were alive to experience biblical miracles. As a matter of fact, if you just start tallying up the miracles recorded in the Bible, uh, what rises out of the scriptures are four primary eras of miracles. There was the era of Moses, and the generations that went to the promised land. There was a season with Elijah and Elisha, and that kind of was the summary of miracles in the Old Testament. Not that there weren't a few others, but as far as normative practice, there were two seasons of miracles. We get to the New Testament, and the life of Jesus presents us with multiple miracles. If you lived in Galilee or Jerusalem in Jesus' day, you could almost expect to see or certainly to hear of miracles. They were happening often. And so it is in the apostolic era, this first generation of the church, uh, roughly 30 or 40 years of that apostolic ministry. Outside of those four seasons of kind of a compilation of miracles, you just don't see much in Scripture that would make you think miracles were ever the normal practice. And frankly, when discussing miraculous gifts with a proper definition of miracle, we should fully expect, by definition of words, that miraculous gifts are temporary. They are seasonal. 
They are the uncommon practice that stands in contrast to the normal practice of God's dealing with humanity. So those four seasons are instructive. Again, it's not conclusive. It it, it doesn't prove the point by itself, but it certainly sends us down a major highway of thinking. These gifts came for seasons. They were temporary in their design. And that question of design then led us to our closing discussion last week. And that was that repeatedly in Scripture we are told how the signs confirmed the message of divine revelation. Of all the things that were told about signs in Scripture, the most common information is why those signs were given. And we went back and we looked at the season of Moses, the season of the prophets, Jesus' ministry, the apostolic ministry. And every single time we're told these signs and wonders confirmed God's revelation. That's why they're called signs. They point to something. They are not an end to themselves. But the signs are designed to say, look, the wonder is not in legs that work now for a lame man. The wonder is the power that intervened to cause those legs to work. They have a purpose. They're pointing to something. And what they were pointing to was God's revelation of truth. The message had been delivered, and in order for everyone to know this message is true, this is from God, signs and wonders confirmed it. So when Moses tells God, how are they going to believe me? God gives them three signs to perform. When Elijah and Elisha performed their miracles, we're told there in in 1 Kings that it confirmed that this was the man of God speaking God's word. When Jesus came, John was careful to document those signs, and he said, these signs are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ. Jesus said, believe me because of who I am, but if you don't believe me for what I say, believe the works that I do. So there's Jesus, you can believe what he says, or Jesus says, believe the works that I do. Take your pick. Because both end up the same way, recognizing who Jesus is. And then in Acts, Romans, 2 Corinthians, and Hebrews were told that signs and wonders confirmed the apostles' message. So these are, these are important statements that give us the purpose of these sign gifts. And again, is continuing to build a case that these gifts only need to function when God's message needs to be confirmed. It helps us understand their temporary nature. And again, after every point, we could almost go to a little parenthetical remembrance. God can do miracles anytime he wants. God can heal anybody he needs to. God could give a missionary the ability to speak or understand a language. God can do any of this anytime. We're simply trying to get to that New Testament church understanding of how do we practice the gifts in the church? Are they normative today? Now, as we study the book of Acts, it's good to remember that we are are observing God's promise being fulfilled as Jesus spoke it, I will build my church. 
And, and this building language is helpful because the Bible is going to tell us this New Testament church is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. So as we study the book of Acts, we're tracking the foundation of the New Testament church. And it's one of these signs or one of these seasons where signs and wonders are being manifest. It accompanied the apostolic ministry and message. So at this time in the history of the church, the temporary season of revelatory and sign gifts seems timely for the church before the establishment of a soul-sufficient authority. So the temporary season of the revelatory and sign gifts done by the apostles seems timely for a church that is looking here and there trying to figure out what is true and who do we listen to? So remember, signs point to something. And we're told that these signs point to truth. That's the kind of overwhelming teaching of the Bible regarding signs. They point to truth. They confirm a message. And now we see in Acts, these signs and wonders are crucial for these believers, many of them new believers, it is crucial for this church to know who to believe and what is truth. Because Jesus the Messiah fit into a long list of a name, the Messiah. Because there had been many Messiahs. Many had claimed to be the deliverer of Israel. And you look especially in that intertestamental period, those 400 years between Malachi and the birth of John the Baptist, uh, lots of things happened. And so when Jesus comes and people say the Messiah has come, for many of the Israelites, it would be, here we go again. All this is going to do is rile up the Romans and get them mad at us again and more restrictions and it's just going to make a mess. Well, now Jesus has lived, he has died he has been raised. He has ascended into heaven. He has commissioned his apostles to go and spread the word. And all these people are hearing, this is true. This was the true Messiah. And God in his kindness, as he had done in these other seasons of Revelation, confirms this message. He confirms those who should be believed. He confirms the message that should be heard with signs and wonders. And those signs and wonders seem crucial to the church until there is an established body of doctrine. You can remember even Apollos as he goes around teaching, apparently a skilled teacher, but he didn't have it quite right and the apostles pulled him aside. Their message is confirmed, their authority is verified and now they're going to him and saying, listen, this is what you need to fix. This is what you need to know. Here's what you need to supplement your teaching with. They had that authority. And Apollos knew to believe them. It's helpful for us to think signs and wonders, if indeed they are temporary, it fits well with this fledgling church that now for the next 30 years from Pentecost is going to be hearing 
preaching from the apostles. They're going to receive letters from apostles and these eyewitnesses. So they're going to begin now reading the accounts that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John give us. They're going to begin reading letters that come from this apostle to the Gentiles, Saul of Tarsus. Uh, All those writings of the New Testament are being written in the 50s and 60s and 70s AD. Uh, Nobody in the book of Acts has any New Testament literature to read as we have the New Testament. So for these next generation, this next generation, these next 30 or 40 years, they're, they're always kind of thinking, well, that sounds good, but how do we know that's true? How do we know what to believe? And in that temporary season, the signs and wonders meet the need of confirming a message. Well, let me read another argument. For the temporary nature of sign gifts, this was made in, in, a, in a paper written by Sinclair Ferguson. You can hear him on uh, RefNet and in some of the conferences that you could find online, through Ligonier especially. Ferguson writes this, The history of the New Testament suggests that by the close of the apostolic age, the role of these gifts was being superseded by the completion of the New Testament. Thus, there is no reference to their presence or, more significantly, their future regulation in the pastoral letters. So there is no reference to the presence of these miraculous gifts or, more significantly, their future regulation in the pastoral letters. The pastoral letters are Paul's writings to Timothy and Titus. And in 1 Timothy, it even tells us, these are written so you might know how to exercise yourself in the church, how the church should function together, how it should choose its leaders and by what standard and what it would look like to give attention to doctrine and to the gifts even. But interestingly, there's no reference to these miraculous sign and revelatory gifts in those pastoral letters. There was no expectation by Paul under inspiration of the Holy Spirit to tell future pastors anything about the use of revelatory gifts. So this silence in the New Testament letters demonstrates a shift, a shift from an era of Spirit-given, apostle-regulated, short-term, revelatory, and sign gifts. So that's one era. Spirit-given, apostle-regulated, short-term display of the gifts. But we're moving from that era in the very New Testament time. We're moving from that era to an era governed by a written record of inspired truth. Now, those sound like different things. An era of spirit-given, apostle-regulated, short-term signs and wonders to an era of written truth. But remember what the Bible has always told us about the signs and wonders. They were given to confirm a message. That's what written truth is. It's it's the message from God. So really we're talking about what has God said in either case. 
The question is, how do we know what God has said? So these pastoral epistles that come later and they're essentially silent on these gifts, yet they are not silent about giving attention to doctrine. It's like the language has shifted when, when you read First and Second Timothy. Instead of signs and wonders confirmed the message, it's no, the message now confirmed through the, the apostles and their ministry is being delivered to the church and that now it's a confirmed message. It's not a new message. And so the admonition to the church moving forward is give attention to the message. It has been established. Jude would write that we should contend for the faith once delivered. It came and in an era when there was uncertainty, so it was confirmed with signs and wonders. And yet now you contend for the faith. You don't look for signs and wonders to confirm the message of every preacher you listen to on TV or radio. No, you go to the already received and accepted body of the faith, doctrine, and by it you measure every other word that comes. So it's a shift and, and it's not even significant, though we would say, oh, it seems significant. We're going from signs and wonders to just a book. But we're, we're really not changing much. We're simply, we're simply changing the way we exercise our faith in what God has said. Is it confirmed by signs and wonders so that when the apostles spoke, we believed them? Or... That's already happened, and now we have what the apostles gave us by inspiration of the Spirit, and we believe it by faith that God has revealed himself. It seems that there's no longer a need for signs, for somebody to point to this and say, this is true, believe it. Our problem is we're just a little late to the game. If we had lived in the book of Acts... Yes, we would have seen the signs and wonders, and we could have said, great, that confirms the apostolic message. But the church was careful, and God's Spirit was, was at work in, in compiling the canon of Scripture so that, in essence, we see but with an eye of faith. You opened your Bibles last week to Acts 3, and we watched a lame man who had been lame from birth leap up, walking and leaping and praising God. How, how did you not see that? You see, we see with the eye of faith, we can see these signs and wonders confirming the message, and we can also say, now we have the whole message. It has been confirmed. We don't need yet another sign to confirm for us today. We can see those signs confirming the message and we hold the message in our hands. We, we have kind of an extra advantage that the early church didn't have. And so there's no need for us to, to panic as if we're missing something or that something so drastic has changed and they used to see wonderful things happen and now we don't. The question was always, what has God said and how do we know it's true? Then it was a verbal message confirmed with signs and wonders. 
But that verbal message more and more became a written message in that first generation, and it was preserved for us so that we know what Paul and the apostles said. And we know that message was confirmed. We can receive it now by faith. We can believe it. We can obey it. So as we go through the, even the New Testament era, we see in the very reading of the New Testament, the, the waning of language on spiritual gifts. In a letter like 1 Corinthians, early on in the church's history, there's a few mentions of the spiritual gifts. And I would argue that even in reading Corinthians in those chapters 12, 13, 14, in, in how to use the gifts and who to believe and who to listen to and when gifts should be exercised and when to interpret the gift of tongues with the gift of interpretation and, and all these things, it's almost as if there's this struggle because people are still prophesying, think, think almost like Old Testament era, and if they are, you remember, men have to do it this way, women have to do it with their head covered, and if they're prophesying, only a couple of them in a service, and if there's more than that, basically, no, it's done, you'll have to wait till next week, and if someone prophesies, others weigh in on those gifts. You read all that going on in Corinthians, and you realize over all of that is this apostolic authority, so that Paul is writing to Corinth, telling them how to manage these gifts. Clearly, the apostolic gift is greater than those gifts because those gifts are waning. They're fading away. They are giving way to the apostolic authority of what God has said. So to think of reading about how the prophets would prophesy in Corinthians and then to realize all of that was, was being put in its place by one gift suddenly elevated above the others, the apostolic gift, saying, no, you prophets, when two or three have spoken, the rest of you are done. Be quiet. You don't prophesy anymore. How, how, how does that work if those, that gift of prophecy was still at the forefront? But it wasn't. It was giving way to the record of truth that would come through the apostles. So by the time Paul is advising Timothy in the letter, Timothy is sick in some way. He's got some kind of ailing stomach disease. Paul says nothing about expecting healing, about finding somebody in the body with the gift of healing. He doesn't mention healing at all. What does he tell him? Find a common remedy. Take a little wine for your stomach's sake. Maybe that'll purify the water a little bit and you'll get a, some better, cleaner fluid in your system. Is that, is that faithless? No. But it, it does seem to lack some of the fervor that is behind today, the gifts of healing, as if those who advocate for the gift of healing being around today could point me to anybody to heal me of my problems. Uh, that's not the way we see the gift of healing being exercised today in a normative practice as we would see in those seasons in Scripture when those miracles were clustered. So read through your New Testament with fresh eyes and, and find for yourself, okay, what, what data would I place in the column saying, 
These gifts were normative in the New Testament church. And what would I find in Scripture that would make me think, maybe this wasn't quite in the forefront like I thought it would be. You don't even have to decide whether you're a cessationist or a continuationist. Just keep looking at Scripture and seeing, okay, what do I see here? And what you're going to see as, as the New Testament blossoms is give attention to doctrine. Pay attention to doctrine. Rightly divide Scripture. Earnestly contend for the faith once delivered. Um, in other words, the assumption is you have what is true. You can know what God has said. Fight for that. Stand for that. Live that. In an age before, they didn't have that. So when people spoke and said, this is really true, God was good to give signs and wonders to confirm that message. Another argument for, again, the temporary nature. If we can establish the temporary nature of the sign gifts, then cessation doesn't sound so harsh. It doesn't sound like we're putting God in the box. It may just sound like we have an understanding of how God has worked in seasons of the past and how he says we are to be functioning today. So we think of the temporary nature of the gifts. We can look back into church history at a key season, uh, that being uh, the Reformation. And, and, and again, anytime we start citing even history, we can be accused of just anecdotally kind of trying to prove a point by one period of history. And, and I understand that. Just you can, you can read patristics, which is the fathers, the early church records in the early hundreds, first centuries. Uh, you can read the reformers. You can study church history in a lot of spheres. And remember, there weren't a lot of denominations. There was the church until the Reformation. Uh, every other denomination kind of generally branches off from there. Um, you can read church history and, and you find only scattered accounts uh, or claims of gifts. You do not find a season of recognized, credible miracles in church history after the apostles. When Rome saw this budding reformation, not that they would have called it that, they would have called it all kinds of other harsh things, uh, when they saw that, they demanded of the reformers signs and wonders. Remember Rome, they had a thing for miracles. Uh, they always had their eye out for something they could slap the label of miracle on because if you're going to be a saint, you had to have performed a miracle or two. So they were into miracles, and they thought, well, if this Reformation is really something they should be able to do miracles. Calvin, of course, articulately responded with this, quote, The new covenant was attested by the outpourings of the miraculous. This is adequate testimony. Since we have no new message, we need no new outpouring of miracles, end quote. So Calvin said to Rome, listen, we have no need to do signs and wonders. Why? Because those were poured out to confirm that the scriptures were true. So now that we have the scriptures, 
That's not a new message. They're 1,500 years removed from that canon of Scripture being uh, compiled. Calvin's saying, we don't have a new message. We're simply pointing to sola scriptura, Scripture alone. Since we have no new message, we need no new outpouring of miracles because that's what signs and wonders are for, to confirm revelation. Do they have side effects? Sure they do. The lame man leaping clearly was designed to show a picture, Jesus can transform your life. Peter would take that illustration and preach his sermon based on it. But there was a side effect. That man's legs actually worked the rest of his life, apparently. So, yes, that miracle was unique to that man in that he had this incredible benefit. But the purpose of that sign was to confirm what was true, that Jesus of Nazareth was Christ, he was Lord, and he can transform your life. So Calvin made a simple yet logical point. No new message, so don't expect signs and wonders to confirm anything. We already know what God has said. And what was interesting was that the reformers battled for this authority of Scripture on two fronts. Rome was making claims of authority on one hand based on their church traditions and their church teachings and the history of their saints and popes. So they were making claims of authority that were in addition to the Bible. But on the other side, they, the reformers were also battling against what was called the radical reformation. And these were the more violent kind of nationalists. They were those that were caught up in the iconoclasm, the destroying of churches and images and icons. Uh, it was kind of an extreme reaction to, uh, to Rome, but those radical reformers also uh, were, were big into extra-biblical revelation. They were into signs and new revelation. God told us to do this. So the reformers were battling Rome on one hand with their extra-biblical authority and some of their kind of own crowd that had gone radical, also clamoring for new revelation and signs. And their answer was simple, a return to doctrine. They didn't say, well, our message is true. We need signs and wonders to confirm that we are right. They said quite the opposite. We are right because we stand on Scripture, and it has been confirmed by signs and wonders. There's no new message that needs confirmation, only belief. And so the Latin phrase that summed up their doctrine of the Spirit confirming the message of Scripture, rather than the Spirit needing to do signs and wonders in their day, their Latin phrase was spiritus cum verbo, spirit with word, truth. They said, this is how we know what is true. The Spirit bears witness to Scripture, Scripture alone. So you go back to that era of church history where more than we tend to recognize, signs and wonders was a big deal. And the Reformers said, we'll have nothing of it. We have Scripture. We know what God has said. We don't need confirmation of any fresh message. 
So sign gifts, miraculous gifts. Have they ceased? Our argument really so far has been just looking at various perspectives that are revealing to us the temporary nature of sign gifts. The very least, that much has to be recognized by any student of the Bible. Whether that leads you to the conclusion of those gifts are not normative today or they are is kind of the next step. But I think it's fair to recognize that temporary is an adjective that is often linked to sign, revelatory, miraculous gifts. Uh, And that's not a bad thing. That's not That's not even a one-sided or biased argument. It should just be pretty obvious in Scripture that uh, these gifts are not common because both sides agree they're miraculous gifts. They're some kind of intervention. Um, And that their their practice, uh, even today as we look around, does not seem to be normative. But again, I would remind you, If the sign gifts are temporary, as the evidence seems to be indicating in our review so far, we don't have to to panic here. We don't have to feel like we're missing out on something. Believers should be far more zealous for the manifestation of the Spirit's power in their everyday lives than they are for the manifestation of the Spirit's power in a -a once-in-a-lifetime miracle of revelation or healing. Because the overwhelming weight of the New Testament teaching is the Spirit's work in us daily to steer us into the righteousness of Christ, which is ours by faith. In the same way that we should or in the same way some would love to see the gift of healing and and a physical body was healed and I saw it and, and my faith was strengthened. In the same excitement, we should celebrate when you and your spouse are getting into a discussion and the Holy Spirit filling you causes you to give a soft answer that turns away wrath. The devil is thwarted. His temptation is denied. And the power that raised Christ from the dead is at work in you to do right. But that seems to pale in comparison to, oh, somebody spoke in tongues, or somebody was healed, or somebody has a word from God. Those sound so dramatic and and alive and real. And yet the New Testament doesn't seem to show us the path to get to those things, but it it says every day you're going to wake up, needing to depend on the Spirit's power, lest you demonstrate to your kids the authority of the Gentiles that Jesus warned us about. That like Rome, you would lord over those kids and just scare them into obedience. Just yell loud enough. Be intimidating enough, and and you'll get them to do what they need to do. But Jesus says, that's not the authority that I'm bringing. Well, how do we avoid making that mistake? How do we avoid being fearful of what people think of us? How do we avoid 
lusting in pornography? How do we avoid all of these sins that so easily beset us? It's by the power of God in our lives, the Holy Spirit's power at work in us. We're not missing out on anything. The apostles didn't have some advantage in their faith that we don't have. Why is it Jesus told these very followers that would work miracles that saints to come would experience greater things than they were seeing right now? Because that Holy Spirit was going to indwell every believer and they would see that power at work in them day by day. We should long for the ordinary power of the Spirit as much as we think we long for the extraordinary power of the Spirit. Maybe we've just lost our appreciation for the everyday promise of God, Philippians 1.6, that we can be confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in us is completing it until the day of Jesus Christ. So God has said, I am doing a work every day to get you where you need to be. Why would we, in in opposition to that, or at least in addition to that, say, yes, but I really need a miracle to happen? It just seems like it, it, it deflates a little there. If we really understood what God is doing by his Holy Spirit in our lives day by day, there would be enough excitement to carry us through if we never saw a miracle, if we never heard anybody speak in tongues, never saw signs and wonders. Our hearts could be full without them. One other thought, and we'll finish perhaps next week. The Holy Spirit through Paul employed the word foundation in Ephesians 2, verse 20, that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus being the cornerstone. We see it in Ephesians 3 and 4 as well. The argument is clearly that there was a transitional, foundational era for the new covenant church centered on apostolic ministry. The building beyond that era The church is built on the foundation. So the building beyond the foundation era of the apostles is something other than apostolic ministry confirmed by signs and wonders. It's an era where the church is built on truth. And that truth has been revealed to us. God's given us his word. So if revelatory and sign gifts like prophecy still exist today, It is hard to resist the conclusion that the foundation established by the apostles and prophets is not completed. That we're not in the New Testament era of the church because we're still in the foundational era of prophetic ministry, new revelation from God. Or we could argue if prophets still exist, Why not apostles? But here's the catch. Nearly every Orthodox Reformed continuationist 
would recognize that there are no apostles anymore. I've read some of them, some some real scholars, people that we would love to fellowship with. Most notably, I could name Sam Storms, used to be a Kansas City pastor, um, deep doctrinal thinker, a continuationist, but would clearly recognize in Scripture that the apostolic ministry has ended. There are no apostles today. But he's always met with the argument, okay, if you are saying no apostles anymore, you're giving some kind of credibility to cessation because not all gifts continue. So the most ardent biblical continuationist recognizes this truth. Not all gifts continue. So their, their position by definition is compromised because they're saying, I, I, yes, some of the gifts don't exist, clearly. Okay, well, if, if if we're going to break the ice and say that God has a temporary design in some of his gifts, then we can suddenly kind of relax and study this with fresh eyes. Maybe the miraculous gifts have a temporary nature. Maybe we're not putting God in a box at all. Maybe we're not doing anything but simply observing that that gift, as defined with a purpose in Scripture, isn't needed right now. No apostles? I say welcome to cessationism. You, you recognize some of the gifts cease and some don't. But it cannot be said that all the gifts are for today, or we must include one of the greatest foundational gifts of the apostolic ministry. My concern is not in last week, this week, and perhaps next week, that you remember every nuance of how to argue with somebody about whether the gifts have ceased or not, but simply to recognize you can be comfortable coming to the scriptures and answering the, not even the charge, but answering maybe the the fanfare that is associated with the miraculous gifts. Sometimes it feels like they have the upper edge, like we have the Holy Spirit. I don't know what's wrong with you others that, that don't practice these gifts. I want you to at least have in your mind wait a minute, Old and New Testament, these gifts were temporary in their clusters and they had a clear purpose to confirm God's message. Is that what we need today? Is the greatest need today hearing from God with new revelation? Or has God even said he would do that? And if we assign the word temporary to signs and wonders miracles, and even some of the specific gifts. Uh, I think we're, we have biblical warrant for that. And two, it reminds us, what do we do with the Holy Spirit today? If we don't use him to heal physical bodies or to give new revelation, what do we do with him? And what you'll find in Scripture is a few verbs, a few phrases about the miraculous gifts in the New Testament letters, and an overwhelming body of doctrine regarding the work of the Holy Spirit in our everyday lives. So if you get nothing out of this at all and don't even remember what ceases or continues, at least remember that you have the Holy Spirit. And and today, even though it's Sunday and you're at church, 
there should be something in you that the alarm going off, like an alarm on your watch or your phone, thinking, I need to be walking in the Spirit today, lest I fulfill the lust of the flesh. I need to be filled with the Spirit so that I can speak to, to others in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, and submit to one another, and encourage one. I need the Holy Spirit today. But I don't know if that prayer is, is echoing in our hearts often. Maybe it does need to become a, a kind of rote practice, part of our routine where we would just remember and remind ourselves, I need the Holy Spirit to get my marriage right and my parenting right and my work ethic in the workplace right and my attitude towards that neighbor right. I need the Holy Spirit. And God has been good to give him to us. So Lord, thank you for your word. We're wrestling with these nuances of doctrine Certainly not unimportant, but we do not want to miss what is at least incredibly practical for us today. And that's not really the miraculous gifts because we haven't been practicing healings on Sundays here. But we do need to feel the conviction of the question, have we been practicing the filling of your spirit? Have we been practicing a walk in the spirit? And perhaps we would do less confessing and less bemoaning of our shortcomings and failures if we would give more attention to the beautiful gift of the Holy Spirit that those original disciples were prepared for by Jesus teaching again and again. And even as Jesus ascended, he told them one more time that Holy Spirit would be poured out And as we've studied there in Acts, in fulfillment of your promise, you, by Jesus, poured out the Holy Spirit so that every one of us could know what is true and right, could love you with whole hearts. And so, Lord, open our eyes this morning to this gift of the Spirit that is ours so that our lives might more and more reflect the glory of our Savior Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.